All right, well, listen, we are continuing in a sermon series that we took a pause on last week because um, of all this snow that did not actually come. Um, fear mongers, that's what I call them, fear mongers, uh, these weathermen. Um, anyway, uh, we're continuing in, in, in a series called What Would Jesus Undo? And if you have been a Christian for, a, you know, in the 90s, I guess, or if you knew a born-again Christian in the 90s, you knew about these, these kind of bracelets that people would wear that said WWJD on them, right? Uh, which stood for what would, what would Jesus do? And it's a fine question. Uh, it lasted for like, I don't know, probably 10 years people had these, these bracelets on. And it was meant to, you know, ask the question in any given situation in your life. You'd look down and be like, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, the problem isn't necessarily the question. The problem is, is with the answer, that uh, the answer was always subject to that person's version of Jesus. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? Well, it kind of looks like this. Um, well, if Jesus had my mother-in-law, if, if Jesus, um, you know, uh, had your boss, or if Jesus had that idiot driver that was in front of you this morning on the way into church, if Jesus had that, then, then I know what he would do. He'd probably do and think and act a whole lot like I would do, given my extreme circumstances. I know he said forgive, but he doesn't understand what they did to me. And so what ends up happening is when we ask that question, what would Jesus do, what it becomes a whole, whole lot more subjective. And because we think that Jesus looks and acts a whole lot like us, we end up serving and worshiping a God that we've created in our own image rather than a God who created us in his image, which are very different things. So I'm not opposed to it. I'm not like, that's coming. But it, but it is difficult because it, it makes Jesus' decision-making very subjective to what I think he would do given my extreme circumstances and the yahoos that are in my life. This is what I think he would probably do, given my choices. Um, but I think an even more intriguing question, and what we're talking about over the next few weeks, is what would Jesus undo? Because what I've found in my life is that Jesus seems to be actually more concerned about undoing things in me than he is about me doing things. We think like, oh, I just need to do this and do this and do more of this and not do this and not do this. I, Jesus seems to be a whole lot more about undoing wrong thinking about him about undoing wrong thinking about who I am in him, about undoing lies that I've believed or that people have spoken over my life. And, and I want him to look like a whole lot more like me. And he, as the creator of the universe, seems to have this idea that he wants us to look a whole lot more like him. Which is why we're asking this question to begin with, what would Jesus undo? And in light of all of this, this whole thing that we're going through, I have bracelets for every single one of you. That's right. You get a bracelet, and you get a bracelet. It's like Oprah. And you get a bracelet, and you get a bracelet. Everybody gets bracelets today. And I know some of you guys were like, are you giving them out today? Like, I don't want to miss church to get these free silicone expensive bracelets, you know? Yes, I have them all for everybody. If you guys want to start passing those out, that'd be awesome. Stay in your seats. Don't get too crazy. Um, yes, I'm not going to charge you for them, but they say WWJU on them. What would Jesus undo? I hope that uh, it sparks some conversation uh, with, with people in, in your life asking you questions, but I've been wearing mine for two weeks and it hasn't destroyed yet, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, anyway, so what would Jesus undo? What would he undo in us? What would he undo in our church? What would he undo in, in, in the American church? And here's the good news about this question. It's not really that subjective. It's pretty objective. 
Jesus is actually not mysterious at all about what he would undo in, in the body of Christ. He's actually very clear about it. There's not a lot of guesswork. Two weeks ago, we talked about, uh, we were looking in Revelation chapter 3, and Jesus was, wrote a letter, literally wrote to the, uh, the church in, in Laodicea, and, um, and he had a whole lot of things that he would undo in the church of Laodicea. And one of those things that we talked about two weeks ago was spiritual meh, just meh. It's when you're like indifferent. You know, he says, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but you're meh, and I'm going to spit you out of, out, of, out of my mouth. And so that's one thing that he would undo to the church of Laodicea. Uh, today I want to stay in the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at uh, Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. So if you've got your Bibles or your Version app or if you don't have a Bible or a phone, we've got it up here on the screens. But turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to get started. Before, as you're turning there to Revelation chapter 2, I want to give you just a little bit of a background history about this church and what was going on in this church in Ephesus at the time of Jesus writing this letter through the, the, the author John. Um, Ephesus was an impressive city. It was one of the most significant and strategic um, port cities in the ancient world. So this, Ephesus was a big deal in its day. In the time that this, uh, that this letter was written, uh, there, was, there was a lot going on in Ephesus. And it was known for a few different things, kind of like Laodicea. The, the first thing it was known for was its focus on knowledge. Knowledge. Le- Ephesus was known for its focus on knowledge. There was a really impressive library ancient library. Uh, it was known as the Library of Celsus, and um, it, was, it was one of the most, most magnificent libraries. It was one of the top three largest libraries in the ancient world. It housed almost 12,000 scrolls, not books, scrolls, housed 12,000 scrolls, and it was a statement to this city's kind of commitment to, to intellectual growth and learning. So this was a big deal in Ephesus. I just want you to understand that. The, the, the second thing that Ephesus was known for was its significant prevalence of idolatry. A lot of idol worship was happening uh, in, in Ephesus. It was famous for having this temple, huge temple called the Temple of Artemis which was uh, one of the most magnificent stru- uh, structures. People from the Roman world would, would come from all over just to be able to, to worship idols and to, and to see this, this huge structure. Uh, it was roughly the size of a soccer field, had 127 columns that were eight feet wide. So just to get, kind of get like a, a mind's eye, you got 127 columns, and these, each column was, was eight feet wide. This absolutely Huge, huge, huge. It was, it was one of the, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The ruins are kind of still around. Uh, the third thing that they're known for, which is certainly not anything to be proud of, but um, outside of the main gate of Ephesus, there was a trash heap. Um, not unlike, you know, many, many cities outside, outside of the main gates, there was a trash heap. Um, this trash heap was, um, was where unwanted babies were discarded. And so... Um, Maybe, maybe for, for whatever reason, maybe they were handicapped. Uh, maybe there was, you know, uh, it was a daughter and the father wanted uh, a son. Um, a, lot of, a lot of different reasons. Maybe they were too poor to feed them or maybe it was a temple prostitute. They, they didn't, didn't want the child. Um, maybe the baby was just simply unwanted. Um, the Romans held to kind of this, they called it the law of exposure, which simply m- means if you just 
you base it all down, is that it was an acceptable way to rid yourself of an unwanted child um, just by you know, leaving them on, this, on the trash heap outside of the city to just die of exposure. It was the law of exposure is what it was called. So people with unwanted children would take and they would leave their child there. Sometimes the child would, would die, obviously. A newborn baby, die of exposure. Sometimes the, uh, the child would be picked up by slave traders and raised and traded uh, the rest of its life. Um, and as I, was, as I was processing through it this week in light of all these other things that are going on in our own culture and in our own day, um, I was like, you know, this is so barbaric. I mean, I can't even believe that this, that this, that this happens. Um, and if I'm completely honest, the rationale seems eerily similar to how we view many unwanted babies here in America. Um, and, and we just do it differently, but, it's, but it, it, was, it was very eye-opening for me as I was thinking like, wow, one person's barbaric is another person's normal. And ancient writings suggest that uh, Christians, early Christians in Ephesus would... Um, would, would actually go to the trash heap. They, they gained notoriety for this. They would, they would take the babies and they would adopt them. They would take these babies. So sometimes you'd have like families with like two or three kids, none of which were actually their own biological family. They were just kids that they took from the trash heap and they'd raise them. And, and people in Ephesus, they just didn't understand this type of sacrificial love. They were just like, this is, why? What? What? Do you, what? I don't understand this. Like, why, why would you want to do this? It was, it was so odd to them. That's, that Christianity started kind of sparking some curiosity in Ephesus, even just due to this. However, over time, this kind of faded, this practice of like taking kids from the trash heap and, and adopting them and raising them. And this doesn't explain why. We just know that it, it just kind of fell out of practice for, for the Ephesian Christians over time. Uh, maybe it was because it was, the need was too great. or you just, Sometimes you just feel like maybe for some of you, like you're trying to do something good and you just feel like, man, like I, I just don't even know, like, I, I can't, I've already have three kids. I can't have a fourth or I, I have a fourth. I can't take a fifth. And, uh, or maybe you just feel like you're just making a dent in it, but you're not actually like solving the problem because tomorrow you could come back and there's another kid there. Like there's, there's just kind of this reality that sometimes we get into this, this place where it's like, I just, I just don't know if I'm actually making the change that, that I was hoping I was going to be able to make. And um, as I was praying through this this week, it was this, this reality that, Whatever the reason, and I'm not talking about adopting kids and all of that, I'm just saying, whatever the reason that we, that we struggle with, every Christian, every church will wrestle with this at some point, and it is this, trading, being correct inside of the church with being a change maker outside of the church. Let me, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. For, for many of us, and listen, I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this play out in, in the lives of, of churches, of Christians. You know, we get saved and we're like, I want to change the world. Like, this is amazing. I have the message of Christianity. I have the hope of the world, like, at my fingertips. And what ends up happening, and it's this sneaky thing that we're going to talk about even more in, in a deeper way, but it's a sneaky thing that we start to trade in being a change maker in the world with being correct inside the church. Where it's like, well, what really matters is that I am doctrinally sound and that I can like, I have a scripture for everything and that I can prove this and prove that and do this and do that and yet think that those two things are synonymous. I, I, I remember when I wanted to be a change maker in the world, but now I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm okay being correct inside the church. That's what's most important. Because we all start out being risk takers in a movement and the slow fade is that we become caretakers in a museum. It's just the, 
It's just a life cycle. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. If you haven't been, been hit with this in your own life, you will be. You will be. Because that's the temptation as Christians. It's the temptation for us to fall into. So um, it, this, is, this is the church. This is the church in Ephesus. This is, what, this, this is what Jesus is writing to. I just want you to understand that. Why don't you stand with me as uh, we read Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is writing through the hand of John what he, would have, what he would say, what he would undo in the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. His name is Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and you've not grown weary. So I just wanted to just pause there for a second. Like he's, Jesus is like, you guys are doing really great in a lot of things. Like you're hardworking, you've done all kinds of good deeds, you're doctrinally pure, you don't put up with heretics, uh, you've endured persecution and hardship, and you guys are tireless. It's, it's pretty encouraging. It's much more than the Laodiceans got last week. In verse 4, he says this, Yet I hold this against you. There's one thing that I would undo. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then he says, and ends in verse 7, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord Jesus, I pray, I thank you for the reading of your word. Just kind of like what Pastor Tom said this morning, that your word stands alone. I pray that it would speak to the hearts and lives of not just our church, not just our nation, but to me and to each and every single one of us personally. Lord, that we would ask maybe that question, what would you undo in me, Jesus? Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We believe that it mines out the gold in people and brings freedom where there is hopelessness. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, the first fill-in-the-blank thing um, <clears throat> says this, we can be busy doing right things and still neglect the most important thing. Or sometimes we can trade in the most important thing by doing a whole bunch of the right things. It's, it's something that, that we've just found in, in, in our own lives we know to be true. Um, and I want us to understand what Jesus is saying that he would undo this week. Um, I hope I can communicate it well because it is beating me half to death for two weeks straight. Nobody wanted us to have church last week more than me. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever had just a word from God or something that you're wrestling with, um, it, sometimes you're just like, I just need to get this out of me. I, need, I just need to move on because, um, because God will just keep knocking on your heart, right, time and time again. So I say this as I preach this message, as we talk about this today. I preach it with the most humble heart that I can. I want you to understand that this is, this is something that, that I deal with. Um, which is why it's beaten me half to death and I can't wait to preach it to you. <laughs> what would Jesus undo? He would undo spiritual pride. 
He would undo spiritual pride. If you grew up in youth group, uh, going to youth group, or maybe if, even as an adult, you've gone to a Christian retreat, uh, we, we have these opportunities that um, happens. And as a, as a youth pastor, I mean, we pretty much did it all the time. Uh, and, and this is what it looks like, and you've probably experienced something like this, where you're given a piece of paper, and you're told, okay, so write down um, anything that you want to repent of or a sin or something like that, right? Put it on the piece of paper. And then you're told, okay, so now you put a bunch of different things. Uh, one, you, you, you nail it to a cross or you throw it into a fire. I like the fire because then nobody else reads it, right? So like, um, but it's kind of like the Christian thing that we do. If you've been a Christian around, you've gone to retreats, you've done it, or you've done it multiple times. And as a youth pastor, I mean, we did it like every single retreat. I mean, it was just like the thing to do. I got really creative. We would write things on like that magic paper. We'd light it. It was so cool. You got to change it up a little bit. And so like, we just came up with these things. And I'm not downing this. I'm, I'm just saying it's a, it's a reality. This is this is what we do as Christians, and, and, and I say this to say that like every time I was faced with this, one word would always find itself on my piece of paper. You know, like, what is it? You know, sickos, you know that? One word. Now, there are other things that would land on the page, which I'm not going to share with you, but one word every time, whether I was uh, just a student, young married guy, uh, whether I was, you know, a youth pastor, whatever. And it was this word, pride. Pride. And I don't know why it found its way on that piece of paper every time. Because I pride myself in not being prideful, you know. <laughs> See what I did there? Um, you know, I, I don't think that I'm the smartest person in every room, just most rooms, right? And so, like... I have no idea why that word always found its way, but I'm telling you, if we did this today and I had you all write it down, right, I would be writing pride on there. Um, and I think when it comes to pride, specifically spiritual pride, which I think is the most dangerous out of all forms of pride, spiritual pride is the most dangerous because it is so stinking sneaky. And we definitely underestimate its sneakiness. We don't see it. We don't see it in ourselves. We can maybe see it in other people, but it's very difficult to see in ourselves. And from what I've learned over the years, as I've just been writing the, that word and throwing it in the fire and nailing it to a cross and saying, I, I don't know what else to do. Jesus, take this from me. I've learned that pride is actually a choice. It's choosing to take myself off the throne and put Jesus on it instead. And it's not a choice that I get to make 34 years ago and just be like, oh yeah, everything's good. It's a reality that it's like a choice I had to make this morning. It's a choice I had to make in between services as I had to preach this again. It's, it's a choice that every single one of us have to make in our life. And one of my worst fears, especially as a pastor, is that... And I hope it's one of your worst fears. Is that we would get so good at doing this Christian thing. <laughs> you know what I mean. Coming to church, raising our hands, singing a song, memorizing some scripture that you can, that you can spout out. Um, that we would fake it well. And our heart wouldn't be connected to it. Because pride will allow you to speak, even with authority, on a subject that you don't really believe in. 
You can get to a place where it masquerades itself, but your heart isn't there. And this is what Jesus was confronting the, the church in Ephesus about. Saying, you guys are doing a lot of great stuff. It's awesome. But you've forsaken your first love. And you've seen it. You've seen it in people that you know, people that you love. You've seen it shipwreck people. You've seen it shipwreck marriages, people even in ministry, right? And it's weird because we'll, we'll talk and be like, well, I don't know, it's so crazy. I didn't see this coming. By all outward signs, everything was great. And then all of a sudden, gone, done. All of a sudden, like, all of a sudden, everything just came unraveled. Why? Because pride helps you to build up a wall, a facade that says everything's all cool. I got this thing all taken care of. I got this whole Christian thing. I actually know more scripture than you do. I actually got this, 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 this I got everything figured out. And then it comes all tumbling down. And what we know to be true is that there is no such thing as an overnight success and there's no such thing as an overnight failure. There is a slow build and a slow fade. And to other people, it may seem like I just, I came out of nowhere. But to us, we know that we know that we know that our heart hasn't been connected to it in a long time. We've been able to keep up the facade and keep things going and, and fool people, but we haven't been able to fool ourselves or fool God. And pride is no respecter of persons. It's after you. It's after you. And if you think that you don't struggle with pride, it's probably already overtaken you. And I say that in love. <laughs> See, because for a long time, pride can masquerade itself as strength or as bravery or as independence. And it can even camouflage itself as humility. All the while, still silently feeding on praise and power behind the scenes. So, how does pride sneak up on us? I've got like six things that uh, I just couldn't get away from this week. Uh, and, I, and I want you to know they're sobering. But I don't preach them looking down my nose at you. I preach them because I know them. <laughs> Luke chapter 18, if you've got your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, a parable of this amazing snapshot of what spiritual pride looks like. And he tells a story about two men who go to the same place for the same purpose. They're, they're both going to the temple to pray, but they couldn't, be, they couldn't be more different. Because why? Because one is a good guy and one is a bad guy. One is a good guy, one's a bad guy. The good guy is the Pharisee. The Pharisee is highly respected in his community. He's, uh, he's memorized all 613 laws of the Old Testament. Not only has he, has he just memorized them, he's, he pretty much obeys every single one of them. So he's like the good guy of all good guys, Right? This is the Pharisee. The bad guy is the tax collector. The tax collector. Now, tax collectors are not necessarily the most popular people in our culture. I'm sorry if you are one. Like, but it is true, right? Like, there's not like, oh, yeah, I can't wait the tax collector to come. Like, it's, it's not a big thing. But they were despised in this culture. Despised. Why? Because they were collecting taxes for the Roman government, the same Roman government that was, that was oppressing his people. Not only that, they were taking more than they needed to to be able to line their own pockets and to be able to make themselves wealthy. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. So there's a good guy and a bad guy. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, this is what Jesus says. To him, to, or to some who were confident of their own righteousness, 
and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this guy sitting next to me, the tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus sums it up in verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, I want to just take a close look. This is a short little parable, but I'm telling you there is so much packed in here that we can learn about how spiritual pride sneaks up on us. It starts in verse 9. He says, we, we essentially get a snapshot of who Jesus is speaking to. It's a good thing it's none of us. He says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. The first point is this, if you're taking notes, it says this. This is how it sneaks up on us. Spiritual pride replaces God as our master with God as our consultant. Spiritual pride replaces God as our master with God as our consultant. This is usually how it begins. This is how it kind of sneaks into us because we ask God for advice when we need it. But of course, as time goes on, we don't really need it. We kind of got this thing and got this thing figured out unless the wheels are coming off. Oh my gosh, now I need you, right? But more than not, I mean, I just kind of need you as a consultant. Why? Because pride gives us this false reality that we are at the center of the universe. And if I need God, I'll pull him into the center of the universe and ask him for help. I need a consultant. Help me figure out how to do this. But if I'm doing okay, I'm kind of the center of my universe, and I'm really okay. Like, you could kind of just stay back there, and I'll call you in if I need you, but I really don't need you to speak into my situation right now, God. You're kind of meddling, right? And we replace God as our master with God as our consultant. And essentially what it means is that we begin living our lives as practical atheists, What do I mean by that? It means that we believe in God, except we live our lives as though he doesn't exist. He's a consultant, not a master. He's someone that we call on when we need someone, but we don't necessarily need him as much as really we think we do. And this is, I just want to show you this. I mean, this is how it began with Lucifer. You're like, Lucifer? Why are you bringing him into this? (laughs) Now you're meddling, Pastor. Right, now this is how it began with Lucifer, I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah 14, verse 13. It says, For Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. It was his pride that got him cast out of heaven. And this, this question has been rolling around in me all week, two weeks, because it's stinking snow. Um, it's this. If pride can turn an angel into a demon, what can it do to you and I? A 
We'll just leave that there. Number two, spiritual pride replaces community with isolation. We see it in verse 11. The Pharisee says what? It says that he stood by himself and prayed. In other words, everybody comes. They all came for the same reason. We come to the temple to pray. The Pharisees like oh, a bunch of robbers, thieves, you know, whatever, adulterers, tax collectors. I'm going to kind of separate myself over here. I'm going to stand by myself and pray. Why? Because pride separates ourselves from other people. We actually value isolation over community. In fact, just the word community, when you're struggling with spiritual pride, just the word of community sounds weak and powerless. I don't need that. A bunch of weak people need that. Life groups? I'm good. I got my life group of one. It's going great. (laughs) Nobody leaves. It's awesome, right? Like, (laughs) spiritual pride rises up on us, and, and, and we discount community and think that isolation is the thing that we should be about. And it breeds distrust in other people. Why? Because I can't trust other people. They've hurt me, they've said things about me, they haven't followed through when they should have, and all these types of things. And pride doesn't know how to be vulnerable or authentic. Those two words actually don't even exist in the vocabulary of pride. It says that safety is only found in control and isolation. I'm all good fine if some of you needy people need community, but I'm actually fine isolated. I just want you to know that's not the spirit of God speaking to you. Number three, I'll move on. I don't worry. I'm, they're like punches and then I move on. Okay. <clears throat> it's like, and then we just keep moving. Okay. Number three, my gut's hurting because I've been punching myself all week. Okay. Number three, spiritual pride replaces humility with comparison. Spiritual pride replaces humility with comparison. And we find this in verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other yahoos. I'm not like the robber. I'm not like the thief. I'm not like an evildoer or the adulterer. And especially like this guy, the tax collector that's sitting next to me. It is so much easier to live life categorizing people rather than seeing people. I just want you to, I mean, it's reality. It's so much easier to categorize people into good guys and bad guys. I don't know about you, I like to make myself always the hero, the good guy. You can kind of maybe hang out with me, but there's really not a lot of room because there's room for like one. That's me. I'm the good guy. You can be friends with a good guy or you're a bad guy. And it's real easy. It's the thing that keeps um, prejudice, the thing that keeps sexism and racism and classism and all the other isms at work. It's replacing humility with comparison because pride fears that if I can see through a person's faults and actually see a human being that's created by God, it might somehow displace me from my spot. And I need to make sure that I hold my spot because it's what I'm holding on to. And pride distorts how we see other people. We don't see other people as humans. We see them as obstacles to getting in the way of us comparing and it falsely like it's i know this well it it falsely reminds us pride does that like you're just a little bit better than the person next to you just a little more committed than them you pretty you volunteer a little bit more than they do you're 
you're a little better looking than they are. Let's just be honest. Now, ladies don't think that. Whenever ladies look in the mirror, they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Guys look in the mirror and they're like, I'm looking good, right? And this is more of a guy thing. You guys, we look in the mirror and we think we look hot, right? Uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's an illusion, isn't it? Pride, pride creates this illusion. They're like, we're just a little bit better. We're more better looking than the person sitting next to us and the, the people that are around us. It reminds us that we're just maybe a little more committed than people around us. C.S. Lewis, in the, his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Constantly looking down, looking next to us, looking around, jockeying for position, comparing ourselves to others. And humility is what reminds us God doesn't judge on the curve. He's looking for hearts that are humble and repentant. That's what he values. All right, I'll keep moving. Number four. Spiritual pride replaces compassion with contempt. Contempt is essentially comparison um, on steroids, right? You not only just compare yourself with other people, you actually have contempt for whole groups of people because it makes it easier for you to be able to kind of figure out where, where, you, where you sit in all this. Because the spiritually proud can begin believing that to be a good Christian is all about news, politics, and what's going on in the White House. That's what it means. I just need to focus myself on uh, the Democrats or the Republicans or the conservatives or the, or, or, or the liberals or what, what they said on news radio or what they didn't say on this. And I, I, I just need to, that's what it means to be a Christian. I just, it's all about news politics and what's going on in the White House. And if I could just focus more on that, then that's going to fix, fix the world. And so what it does is it, it creates this thing where we'll watch the news and we'll say things like, Margaret, the hell, you're worth going to hell in a handbasket, right? And we'll say things like that as if that's, like we're called to judge the world rather than to be a conduit to change it. And it's very easy to just kind of, instead of, uh, instead of having compassion for people, to just stand in contempt. Yeah. I just don't have anything in common. These people are, no, they're just... I just, I can't, I can't even, I can't even have conversations. And when we are, don't have like a guard up for pride, spiritual pride, I'll speak for myself. I can become complacently pleased with myself so much so that I look down on other people and I don't see them. I'm so complacently proud of myself, doing really good. Things are going great, but all of you are a mess. I mean, just being honest, this is what pride, spiritual pride, the most dangerous type of pride, this is what it starts to work on the inside of a heart. Number five, spiritual pride replaces God exaltation with self-exaltation. He says this, uh, verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, as if God needed to be reminded, right? Um, Jesus, Jesus takes a look at this, at this Pharisee's prayer. I mean, this guy's all by himself. He might as well have been praying to himself. Everything that he has to say is really more about himself. He's like, God, thank you. I mean, he mentions God's name, but then he's like, thanks that I'm not like all these other yahoos, like him and him and her and him and her, and I give and I do and I am, and this is who... 
It's all about him. It's all about self-exaltation. And in contrast, we look at what the sinner, this despised tax collector, prays. He just simply says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The proud Pharisee exalts himself, and the despised tax collector exalts God. And Jesus says, the tax collector is the one who goes away reconciled. Number six, spiritual pride replaces a love for God with a whole bunch of good. Spiritual pride replaces a love for God with a whole bunch of good. And this is the temptation that each and every single one of us um, have faced, are facing, or will face sometime in our life. And it's this question that rolls around on the inside of us. And it's this, doesn't my giving or my volunteering or just being a darn good person cover me? Doesn't, Doesn't my commitment and my discipline to God or to the church count as love for God? I mean, this is the thing that rolls around me, even as like, I'm like a professional Christian, right? Like I'm a pastor. That's the stuff that like rolls around. Like doesn't my, my service, I'm giving you my life, right? You know, like all this stuff. Like, I'm like doing all these things. Like I'm, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so humble. You know, like I do all these, like doesn't that make up or doesn't that count? Doesn't that, is there a trade there that that counts as love for God? Like, and this is what the Pharisee's saying. I don't think he's being evil. I think he's just like you and me. He's like, I fast twice a week, which is more than I do. I give 10% of all I get. Wow, it's awesome, right? And here's the thing. He thought he was doing good things, holy things, and he was. He was. Jesus' point is this. He just lost, he lost the whole reason why he was doing what he was doing. He got so focused on all of these other things. Because pride blinds us. And we move, if we're not careful, we move from essentially, you know, having a relationship that we enjoy with Christ to making it into a belief system that we adhere to. That's all it is. It blinds us. And Jesus, he's, he's confronting the church in Ephesus and I want you to see this. I mean, these guys were like slamming it. They were doing awesome. Like they, they didn't have wrong books on their shelf. He wasn't saying anything about that. They didn't have wrong teachers in their pulpit. They didn't, they, they, Jesus wasn't criticizing them for not being givers. Like they were fine in that area of their life, right? Jesus didn't tell them that they weren't doing good works. He was like, no, I see your good works. They're awesome. It was that they had forgotten what this was all about. They had forsaken the love that they had at first. That's what he was saying. I, I, don't, I don't get to... Uh, I don't get to go to other churches like some of you. Um, sorry. I'm here, right? Every week, I'm here. And so, um, but every once in a while, like I'll get a Sunday off and uh, I'll actually want to go to church um, someplace else. And so, um, this is a few years back, I'd gone to a church and uh, I, I was sitting there and, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's weird as a pastor, you know, it's kind of like you go and you're kind of like, nobody knows me, this is kind of cool. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm just here, but I'm, I'm used to this, and I don't know. And so I'm, I'm listening, and I, I really wasn't trying to be critical, honestly. <laughs> and they were talking about pride. And, and I was listening, and they were singing about Jesus and praying about Jesus and, and worshiping about Jesus and preaching about Jesus like he wasn't in the room. I, I, I was, and I was wondering, is he? And this thought like came to me, it's like, Lord, may we never be a church 
that talks about you like you're not here. May we, we better have the presence of God here. Because if we don't, listen, this is not a memorial service where, where we talk about some dead mute idol. We're not talking about some God that, oh, wasn't it great? Let's read some good stories about him. No, we believe that Jesus is living, he's alive, he's active. The very things that he's done in his word, he wants to do today. Like, this is not some, like, memorial to some dead God that, don't you remember? Here's some great stories about when he was around here. He's here. He's here, isn't he? He's here. May we never become a church like that. And so Jesus tells us how to get back on track. Why don't you stand with me? I want to leave you with just three things. He says this um, in in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. One thing I love about Jesus, he's always giving us application, things that we can do right right then and there. He never just says, hey, y'all are screw-ups. You're really bad at being humans. And like, you should probably figure it out. And then leaves us. Which is sometimes how you, when you leave, you know, you like, you hear a sermon and they're just like, yeah, you, you, you pretty much stink at life. And you're like, oh, that was a good, that was a good message. You kicked me in the butt. Like, no, this isn't what, this isn't what Jesus does. He doesn't just point out our faults just to say, yeah, you're screwed up. He actually wants to give us something to be able to move forward in. And he says this, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not, catch this, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is a huge deal to Jesus. I mean, to, to me, I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, my heart's not really in it. I'm still doing things. I'm still like serving Jesus and I'm, I'm coming to church and all these things. This is actually huge. This church in Ephesus is in danger of losing its light. And I want you to hear me, and I say this in the most amount of love, but the church that loses its love will soon lose its light. And it doesn't matter how doctrinally sound it is. The church that loses its love will soon lose its light. And we've seen it. You've seen it. Churches that were built for far more and are virtually empty. Lifeless. No longer a light to the community. Jesus says this, consider how far you've fallen. That's his first step. He says, consider how far you... Listen, humility is not perfection. It's just honesty. It's being open to correction from God. And for maybe for some of you, as you've been like, we've been going through all six of these points and, and you've been dodging them or you've been like, oh, God, that's for her, not me. Like, you know, I hope she's listening. I should get this tape for somebody else. Like, you're like, I wonder if maybe your prayer today is just to ask God, God, would you give me an accurate view of myself? I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that. God, I, I got to... I, I see myself the way I want to see myself, but I don't see myself the way you see me or the way others around me see me. So God, I pray that you would give me an accurate view of myself today. Lord, what would you want to undo in my heart today? I'm open to you, God. Proverbs 29, verse 23, says, Pride lands you flat on your face. Humility prepares you for honors. And it's been rolling around in me all week. This, this reality. I have never met a man who tripped when he was on his face before God. It's very difficult to do, you know that? When you're on your face before God, it's actually really hard to trip. When you're walking around like this, everything all figured out, I'm fine, right? Well, it's a whole lot easier to trip. But I've never met a person that has tripped with their face before God. He says this, repent. 
Not only consider how far you've fallen, not only like, hey, you guys are screwed up. Hey, you messed up. Hey, you're so prideful. Hey, you need to get this figured out. He says, repent. I don't just tell you things that, 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 that I want to undo in you so that you can be like, oh yeah, I should probably undo that. He's like, here's your next step. Your next step is to repent. And for many of us, including myself, I have no problem looking at other people who need to repent. But, the, but when, the, when it's pointed back at me, that's when the real question comes. Am I willing to repent? Well, pastor, I did that 32 years ago, back in Sunday school. No, I'm talking about this morning. This morning. Remember when you said that to the person that you loved in the car? Remember that? Are you willing to repent? That's what Jesus values. Because here's the temptation. When, when, when we become Christians, it's this, it's this fade that we've been talking about, this fade of pride that happens in our life is that we try to convince ourselves that we can simply trade in sin. I'm going to, you know, there are some sins that, you know, becoming a Christian, they're just socially unacceptable. I can't do those anymore. So you know what? I'm just going to trade them in for a sin that's easier to hide. I can't do this anymore, so I'm going to let that go, but I'm going to trade. I'm going to do something that's a little bit easier to hide that nobody can find out, nobody can see. But Jesus did not die for a better sin management program. Did you know that? 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So he's not like, hey, you guys are screwed up. He's like, listen, if you repent and confess your sins, I'm faithful to forgive them. And I'm not just going to forgive them and send you on your way. I'm actually going to purify you from all unrighteousness. That's a good deal. Is that not a good deal? I just want to encourage you to be real with God. Maybe today, be real. You can't fool him. You can't hide from him. Don't even try tell him that you want to want him. And when you don't want him, tell him that you want to want to want him. You'll, you'll remember that. Probably the only thing you going to remember. Tell him that you want to want to want him. Be honest with him. Be honest with him. Whatever it is that's, that's going on in your life. Take all of me, Jesus. And the last thing as we enter into a time of worship, this last song, is that he says, do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first because we can all get off track when we're running this race. People call it burnout. It's when you start running this race and then you realize, I don't know why I'm running this race anymore. I'm just kind of doing this thing and I kind of got lost in the middle of it. I'm just kind of running. I got people depending on me and I'm trying to do good things and I've got these commitments and I'm serving in kids' church and I don't like kids and I don't understand why I'm doing this anymore. Like I'm just going and I'm going and I'm running and I have no idea why I'm doing this. And Jesus is reminding us, do the things you did at first. Remember what won you over. Don't just run for the sake of running or come up with milestones. Be like, oh, I'm gonna get so many steps in today. No, it's not about that. He doesn't care how many steps you got in today. He's actually more concerned that you understand why you're running in the first place. It's for the prize. It's for the prize. I want to end with this prayer. It's Psalm 139, verse 23. He says this, Investigate my life, O God. Maybe this is your prayer today. Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. So I wonder if there's something that, like Katie was saying, that's dried up, dead, or dying in your life that needs to be 
brought back to life. There's an area of your life that you just say, you know what, God, I need to bring this to you. Maybe you've got this pride in, in, in an area of your life and you just know that you know that you know it. I just want to encourage you as we sing today, you can feel free to make your way outside, out, of, out, of, out of your seat. Maybe you just stay in your seat, get on your, get on your knees, whatever that looks like for you. But just make it, make it right before the Lord today. And it's not about what you do. It is about your heart saying, God, I want my heart to be connected to you again. I don't want to forsake what I did at first. So God, I pray that you would call each and every single one of us back to your heart today. Lord, that we wouldn't be like that church in Ephesus that's doing a whole bunch of good but forgetting the most important part. So Jesus, I pray you'd call us back to your heart today. As your people, we want to serve you with all of us. I want to want to want you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, I just want to share Psalm 51, verse 12. It says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Father, I thank you that your spirit toward us is generous, that you're generous at every turn, that you not only give us the truth, God, to correct us along the way, God, but you give us the truth to help us in that correction. So I thank you. Let your spirit be generous to us this week. Lord, whatever you're speaking to our hearts, I pray that this week we would walk that out and find the joy of our salvation. Amen.